Welcome to the Adventist Church of the Woodlands podcast, where you will find sermons, devotional thoughts, and current event conversations, all based on a biblical worldview. Go ahead and get started. Now to give a little recap, there are some people who haven't been here, and so for their sake, I'll give a little recap. We've been answering or trying to answer this question. Why does God allow evil and suffering? And the reality from the first night we said is that nobody can give a totally complete answer. That's why there are two things in scripture called mysteries. The mystery of iniquity. How did sin rise up in the, in the, right in the front of the throne of God? And then there is the mystery of godliness. How can God well, be perfect, right? I can understand something living forever, but something not having a beginning, that is just mysterious. And so the second night we looked, we looked at the character of God. And we asked and we saw that God is perfect, God is love, He has all knowledge, that there is no sin in Him, and yet this is a reality, right? There is suffering and pain. Second night we looked at the enemy and how Satan is after each and every one of us and his characteristics and what he wants. Well, the next time, but anyway, that's part of uh, things are blending in my head. But then we started talking about this new concept in the great controversy, what we call rules of engagement, where we saw throughout the Bible that God's power, even though he's still the most powerful being in the world, even though he is perfect and holy, because his character is being infused, because his character is being attacked, he cannot just end sin right away because the accusations against him need time to be proven wrong. And so, in essence, the whole Bible story is a courtroom drama in which God is on trial. And the battle is between Christ and Satan. The father we saw last night is the presiding judge. But there are accusations and there are things happening behind the scenes that we're not privy to. But however, there's sufficient evidence to know that there is a heavenly council that uh, dictates and allows what's going on. Also, all of this is based on the fact that we are all free moral agents. And God cannot necessarily intervene in every aspect and stop every aspect of pain and suffering. Otherwise, he would be proving the accusations of Satan right, that God is a dictator, that he runs, somebody used the word arbitrarily last night, and that he cannot, that his government cannot be followed unless he forces people to follow and so he allows, and we saw in the story of Job, how Job went through immense suffering, and yet, the Bible tells us, not once did he blame God for that suffering. And so as we look at the story of the great controversy from this rules of engagement motif or template, we begin to realize, or at least I begin to realize, that the closer I follow God, the more I can trust him, because I know exactly what he's asking of me based on the covenant 
in the Old Testament of the blessings and the and he helps me live out the covenant through obedience because of the price that Jesus. One beautiful thing about this pain and suffering is that our God is not only a God who created us, but he's also a God who has experienced himself pain and suffering. And we're going to elaborate a, a little bit more on that. To, after tonight, the last three nights, we transition to how you and I make sure we overcome based on the covenant stipulations that God has given. Given the framework, while God remains omnipotent, there are e uh, um, omnipotent, there are some evils that God cannot morally prevent because of his covenant commitment. If he would interfere in the free will lives of everybody, then people will follow him simply because he saves us from all pain and suffering. But the reality is that he saves us at times through pain and suffering. Whenever God does, whereas God does everything he morally can do to eliminate evil, and we'll see verses, in some cases, eliminating evil directly would be against the rules of engagement affecting creaturely free will or result in greater evil or the less flourishing of love so we'll expand on this this so tonight we're going to look at already the the steps god has taken and is taking within the covenant template within the rules of engagement to eliminate the problem of evil it's not something he's going to strictly do at the end of time he's already doing it and we'll look at that tonight says the son of god appeared for this purpose for what to destroy the works of so right away jesus was sent for what purpose not only you know sometimes we look at salvation just from the standpoint of saving us individually but there are other reasons why he came and here's stated he came to destroy the works of the devil all the pain and suffering that he causes, he came to eliminate that. And as much then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise, that through death he might destroy at the power of death. Every time we go through pain and know that he partook of us to experience the same pain and suffering. But what's interesting just now, to use a personal example, <clears throat> we were carrying this from back there and it hit me in the ankle like right here, and it hurts, it's already bruised. But David, who helped me carry this, he felt bad that I got hurt, but he did not experience my pain. You wanna try? <laughs> but in his humanity, and, and, in, and in a way we can't explain, part of the mystery of godliness, Christ has experienced your suffering, my suffering, and everybody's suffering here, and all the suffering that's ever taken, for he took sin upon himself. Can you imagine, most of the time we suffer, suffering by getting hit on an ankle is different than watching your own child in the hospital not knowing what's going. The mental anguish always beats the physical pain. For the physical pain, your body can handle, because at times you just pass out. But the mental anguish, 
was heaped upon him, which is why he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so Christ in his, his own humanity has experienced in that moment by that cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In essence, the very same questions we have asked when we have suffered, wondering where is God when I need him most? But he came to destroy him who had the power of death. The cosmic conflict involves a courtroom drama regarding God's character. It could not be settled prematurely by the exercise of divine power. Right? That's why God couldn't destroy Satan right away. He could from a power standpoint, but if he destroyed him right away, then the lingering thought would have been upon every free will creature that the accusation Satan made against God being a tyrant and unjust and immoral and not and withholding things from his creatures would have been proven true. And that blight of doubt and that blight of sin would have been forever with his creation. So God, an attack on his character had to be handled in a different way. And so he came to prove not only that the verbal accusations were wrong, but to prove by experience and by living it out that God's character is a character of love and on top of that, sacrificial love. But the Bible tells us that no greater love has, you know, that someone has than to lay down your life for a friend. And we've been talking about throughout this week about God not being able in his truth and in the fact that he is full of integrity, that he cannot bias the witness, but that the enemy tries to do everything. And he did, right? When he caused our uh, parents to sin, when he caused them, because upon sin, our characters were bent on evil to, to naturally mistrust God to be sinners, to be enemies of God, yet even while we were yet enemies, Christ died to reconcile us. Not to bias us, but to put us on, on an equal ground where we can discern between evil and good, and then he bids us, follow me. So in this courtroom conflict, in the rules of engagement, God couldn't de destroy him with divine power, but it required a public demonstration of God's justice and character to defeat the slanderous allegations against God. The only way you prove your character to someone is for someone to see enough evidence that it's, that's not who you are, meaning the accusations. You can fake it for a long time. If you're a mean person, you could fake it for a while. But eventually your true character will come out. Somebody steps on your brand new white sneaker or cuts you off on the road. C.S. Lewis talks about, you wanna know the character of a minister? Have lunch with his family and see how the kids and the wife act. So we're having lunch at the Wayne's house, if you want to visit. <laughs> So God came in. He said, I'm going to show you that I am love. 
But I'm not just going to declare it. I'm going to become one with the race I came. And I'm going to overcome in the same way they can overcome. By complete dependence on my And he's not going to save me from every single ordeal I deal with, just like he doesn't do for us. But so much so, he didn't save him that he ended up on the cross. Not because he had to, he wanted. Because he was dying. God demonstrate God's justice and his character to defeat the enemy's slanderous allegations by so by willingly surrendering his life to die in your place. The conflict over God's character and moral government is answered and resolved by the voluntary suffering and pain of the Son of God. He's walking with you through your And just like Christ could not sense the Father in that moment of the cross, Nevertheless, the Bible tells us that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And that's why we don't live by feelings, but by faith. And in your darkest moments and in your most painful moments, as we've been saying throughout the seminar, you can have the assurance that God can be trusted even though you don't sense it. More of the solution of evil. Whom God displayed publicly as sin in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate to the universe, to court, his righteousness. In the forbearance of God, he passed on for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness. So that he would be just in the... When you demonstrate something, you don't do it by yourself, locked up in a room. When you demonstrate something, you do it for an audience. And as we saw... From the book of Job and from other places in scripture that there is an audience Paul talked about how we are a spectacle both to angels and to the world God in Christ the fact that Christ has died for us is a demonstration to not only us humans but to the angelic universe that God's ways are just true and that he has skin in the game himself that he is willing to leave all of heaven all the glory so that you and i can have a second but satan wanted more but god demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were young, we were witnesses of the enemy and he still died for us because he knows that the engine's deception and he wanted to put us on equal ground so we can discern freely between truth and error. For this reason, for this I have been born, and for this I have come testified to. Right? There's an accusation against God in the heavenly courtroom. There's an accusation as to whether he really loves you, whether he cares, whether he's going to treat you right and be just. But Jesus, using courtroom language, talks about he came to testify. He testifies not only on his behalf. This individual so-and-so has followed me. And so they belong next to me on the throne. One of the most beautiful promises found in the Bible is found in one of the most depressing sections of the church, the church of Laodicea. Nothing is good said of it. Yet if they overcome by the blood of the Lamb, they get the best prize from the other churches. Just to sit on his throne with him. 
And if you have the throne, you have what? You have everything. And so Jesus came to testify on our behalf about the righteousness of God's power. But now there's Lucifer. And in a sense, he's hanging himself by his own admissions and testify, you know, what he testified. God makes it clear that you were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. In other words, he freely chose this iniquity. God made him perfect. There was no excuse, especially in front of the throne of grace as a covering angel for him to turn that way. But because love demands freedom and love makes evil possible, not that it has to happen, but because of freedom, it's possible. Lucifer took that route. How have you fallen from heaven, O son of the morning? How you are cut down to the ground. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the monarch. I will ascend above the heights of the... I will be one five times. It's all about I will. And some people say that the opposite of love is selfishness. It's all about me, what I want. And here Lucifer in the end has declared to you and to me, and we saw it last night in the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, he has declared that what he's after is to be God, to be like the Most High, to be worshipped. And God in this covenant engagement, in the rules of engagement, has allowed Lucifer, Satan, to carry out his game plan so that the world may know that his ways lead to death. And when that is finally eradicated, then none of us will venture down that road again, not because we can't, but because we will not freely want to go down that road Jesus saw this. He said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. And we're going to see that Lucifer's arguments were persuasive. And his tail swept away a third of the stars, threw them to earth. Now think about it. The angels were perfect at that time. Adam and Eve were sinless. And yet the enemy's arguments further prove that this is not a power battle, but a battle of the mind. His arguments were so persuasive that a third of perfect beings decided he was telling the truth. A third of perfect, angelic people who, not like you and I, who, who accept Christ by faith, but people who have actually stood before God Almighty, who have seen God as he is, found the enemy's arguments so persuasive that they decided to follow him. That's why the covenant stipulations are imperative for us to follow them. Otherwise, we can be led down the road of deception as well. Proven here, the great, uh, so the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old, deceives what? And you know, part of this word deceive in the original language has an insinuation of, you know, when you think of the word deception, you think somebody totally being deceived. But what's worse sometimes 
is not being totally deceived when you are trying to follow the truth, right? Because when you're deceived totally, do you know you're deceived? Mm -hmm. No. Not until something snaps you out of it do you realize. But sometimes, right, you could be thinking you're in the truth, thinking you are following God, but all you have to do is be distracted. And this word in the original language has also one of the secondary meanings, that notion. It's not that he totally deceives, but he has the whole world distracted from what is true. There's a young man who was riding a car in a farm. He was underage, to let him drive the car. And I think I've shared this at the She thought, you know, he's not going on the road. It's like a big farm with hundreds of acres. There's windy roads, let him practice there. But at that moment, his cousins arrived. And trying to show off, he had his hand on the wheel. He was waving at his cousins. Well, what happens when you're not looking, especially if you're inexperienced? He veered off just slightly. Now, he was fine. But the car he was using was his sister's company. So she had to write a big check for the company. He didn't have to be deceived. He knew how to drive. But for the split moment, he was distracted. And so in this world today, in this society we live today, there are so many things to distract us from the true meanings of life, from what really matters, the pursuit of careers, college education, social life, social media, tablets, phones, computers. Sometimes I'm grateful for the Sabbath to put that all down and concentrate in my relationship. So the Bible tells us that he deceives the whole world. But there's two words here. You know, the Bible tells us that the way we study is here a little, there a little, line by line, order upon order. There is this key word here. The dragon was cast out. It's repeated here. Cast to the earth. Cast out. When you look at that word, you begin to find its connotation of when was he cast out. Because we learned yesterday that when the sons of God present themselves, guess who shows up? Satan does. Because he has dominion over this. But at some point he was cast out of heaven. And through the clues of these words in the original language, but also now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be what? Cast out. And what's the context? And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to me. So God has begun mitigating or hindering or enclosing the enemy from his total power. He can no longer enter heaven and make these accusations. He's no longer part of the heavenly board meetings that were taking place that we saw from examples of Daniel 4:17 and the examples of Job. That is why we're going to see here, when you see the heavenly council scenes in the book of Revelation, guess who's not there? The enemy. We'll look at one found in Revelation chapters 4 and 5. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. Remember from Daniel chapter 7, right? There were myriad of myriads of angels and thousands of thousands of ministers. I heard the voice of many angels around the creatures and the elders. 
and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is a lamb that was slain to receive power and riches. Remember in Revelation chapter 5, for a temporary moment they were weeping for nobody was able to open the scroll. And they were looking in what direction? They were looking to earth. Is there no one from earth that's worthy to open the scroll? And finally, there was a lamb as if slain. And Jesus comes up, and he is worthy. For he has wrested away dominion of, from Satan, and he is now has a dominion of representation for this earth, even though the enemy still has some jurisdiction for the fact that we are still here suffering and in pain. He was considered worthy. And that's why the land that was slain was able to receive power. So Satan's been no longer able <clears throat> to object to the heavenly council's decisions in heaven. No longer able he can still accuse, but he's no longer privy to the plans of God in heaven. He's been kicked out, and that's why he's mad. And he recognizes, and Peter tells us that he's like a roaring lion seeing he could devour. We've heard it from movies, but he's looking. If he's going to die, he says, I'm taking as many as you with me as possible. Because the enemy, as we learned yesterday, comes to steal, kill, and if you remember in the story of Job that the one thing he could not do was what? Kill Job. But Satan never behaves to the rules of engagement. How do I know this? Well, we saw plenty of examples. But in the story of Job, he says, okay, I can't kill him. But let me drive his wife to such despair. Let me drive him to such despair that I'll get her to do my dirty work. And so she whispers in Job's ear, do you still keep your integrity? Curse God and kill yourself. Violation of the rules of engagement. Tries to go through the back door. And he, he poured all this pain and suffering, pain on Job to the point where Job was wanting to talk to God and, and was in despair but never blamed God. He just wanted answers. But let me ask you this question. Because Satan can no longer go to heaven. Do you think he has stopped trying to kill you? In Revelation chapter 12, it says that the flood, remember, the flood that Satan sent was swallowed up by the earth and saved the woman. Remember that from Revelation 12. That earth represents the United States of America and the religious liberty that we have here. And not only that, but the, the liberty of conscience that we have here. To worship and serve God to the dictates of our own conscience. Freedom. Now when you look at Revelation chapter 12 and the history of Satan's attack on God's people for the times, times, and times and a half, his primary weapon to dissuade people from following God was what? Pain and suffering. The persecutions, the, 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 the torture of God's people, the, the over 60 million Christians who died for their faith 
in the in the 1290 year rule of Satan's reign of terror what people know from history as the dark ages and even now Christian persecution but if you're die for Christ then you're assured a place in heaven right but Satan is trying to use your pain and so either you kill yourself you despair so much that you give up on God either route you take he has achieved your destruction whether you kill yourself or you give up on God because of all the pain and suffering and so that's why Christ came to die for I've experienced what Satan wants for your life, which is destruction. But he didn't kill me. I laid down my life. So here we see Christ in the heavenly courtroom, because of his death, has cast Satan out. Therefore, our call is to submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you by the power of but the word submit has an implication. It doesn't say, therefore I will force you to God and the devil will flee from you. Submit implies what? That in your free will and in your free choice, you can or cannot decide to submit to God. He's not going to bias the weapon. He's not going to violate the covenant stipulations. But if you submit to him willingly, then through him you have the power to resist the devil and he will flee from you. But he said no, right? Satan is no longer in, can go to heaven, but we're still here. So he still has some rulership. But he said no, for while you are gathering up, you may uproot the way. Allow both to grow, the evil and the good the righteous unto the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the first, gather up the tares and bind them into bundles to, to gather the wheat. If you've ever planted anything, if you pick the fruit too early, it's no good. And in this example, I've never seen this live, right, in reality, but they say the wheat and the tares kind of look a lot alike. So God has to allow this experiment this attack on his character to go on sufficiently so that when he finally puts an end to it and he will iniquity will not even consider rising up again not because it can't but because <clears throat> nobody will want it. and the field is the world and as for the good seed these are the sons of the king and the tares are the sons so just as it so shall it be your name and my name will be called before the heavenly throne. And we saw from yesterday that not just based on Daniel chapter 7, but based on what, the 11 or 12 other stories. And for those who weren't here, the investigative judgment can be proved without using, in every story of, the story of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah, Babylon, um, Sodom and Gomorrah, the story of Ananias and Sapphira, the woman at the well, the woman caught in adultery, Jesus walking in the seven churches. In all of those stories, what they have in common before God pronounces punishment or vindication is that God investigates each of those stories before he... 
in each of those stories. So people who say the investigative judgment is not real and they try to argue from Daniel chapter 7, just look at the rest of the Bible. It's there. By the time we get to Daniel chapter 7, and so you and I are going to be called to witness. So only you and the life you live, not the life you profess, but the life you live will testify whether God is right or whether the enemy. But guess what? The heavenly court at the cross has decided that God is right. Now it's only an individual. For those who decide God is right, not by mere thought, but by the fact that it, it animates your life, they will be taken with God. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, judge between what more was there to do for my vineyard. We can extrapolate, not only is he talking about it, but in the whole plan of salvation, throughout all the universe, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, and everybody, judge between what more was there to do. And he has done it all. When he came down from the throne, became flesh, lived the same life you and I have lived, died on our behalf, was resurrected to glory, took dominion from Satan, and now offers all of us eternal life. What more can he do? The implication is here, I have surrendered all. I have given all. The heavenly courts have decided there is no more than I can do. When he gave it all, when he gave himself, God in Christ reconciling the world, the universe to himself. And that's why the angels at the end will cry out, righteous and true are your ways. And that's why Jesus himself declared that at my feet every tongue will, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that throughout all this process I have kept my integrity, I have kept the covenant stipulations, I have been true to my word and every knee will bow and confess that God is right Lord. Before we play like Mr. Spock, logic. But if you read the entire chapter, you can sense the emotion. <clears throat> it's almost similar to when Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her chick. But once again, what's the key? Free will. You were not willing. May it not be said of us. So the dragon is cast out. Can't make objections because nobody's buying him in heaven anymore. His seal, his fate has been sealed in heaven. They know God is right. Now, now what's left is us, the witnesses, to decide. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make the last three the rules of engagement. He tries to violate them to attack and those people. He's enraged. He knows he's lost, but he still wants to use whatever means for God. We should then continually recognize first, like Job, just because we do not see sufficient reasons why God may permit evil or appears to be hidden, it does not follow that there are no sufficient We just don't know. Absence of evidence is not evidence. Second, Though we only know in part, 1 Corinthians 13, we can look to the cross as the ultimate manifestation of God's love, which offers sufficient reason to trust that God does everything that he can that can be done for the of everyone. 
We don't have all the answers, but we have sufficient that he is taking care of the problem and that he is partaker of the pain and suffering we go through. And he's already limited the power. When God does not intervene, prevent some horrendous, it might be because, might be against the rules of engagement, might impinge on creaturely free will. If I want to kill somebody, I'm free to do so. And so are others. Or three, might result in greater evil or the less flourishing. And we will expound on those. The last three nights are focused on the fact. <clears throat> but even though you, no matter how dark it gets, God, dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your love. I thank you that you're already limiting the power of Satan. But Father, now he's enraged and he's coming after us. Father, as we conclude this series in the next, I pray that your Holy Spirit will give us the strength to fully surrender daily to the Lamb that takes away our sins and gives us sin. Thank you for listening to the Adventist Church of the Woodlands podcast. You can find us at woodlandsadventist.org and you can visit us anytime. You're more than welcome. God bless you and have a great day.